I'm glad to be here. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22, and we will read... the words of institution beginning in verse 14. I'll read verses 14 to 23. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 23. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this hour. Oh, gracious and merciful Father, thank you for gathering your people together on your day. We thank you so very much for the Lord's day. We thank you for this market day of the soul, and we pray that you would feed us good things from your storehouse. Help us, Lord, uh, as we consider the Lord's table this morning. We pray that you would expand our understanding of the ordinance, that you would stir up our hearts to par partake of it with knowledge and in faith and grace. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time. In Christ's name, amen. 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 So this morning, I want to speak to you about the Puritans on the Lord's Supper. I um, did a study on the Lord's Supper, really on Puritan theology and what the Puritans taught on different doctrines. And so I wanted to share some of the things that they spoke concerning this ordinance. The Puritans referred to the Lord's Supper as an earthly encounter with the heavenly Christ. Stephen Charnock said, this, There is in this action more communion with God than in any other religious act. We have not so near a communion with a person either by petitioning for someone or for something we want or returning him thanks for a favor received as we do by sitting with him at his table and partaking of the same bread and the same cup with him. The Puritans had a very high view of the Lord's Supper. They loved the ordinance, and they sought to define it biblically and practice it spiritually. This morning, what I want to focus our attention on is on the meaning of the ordinance itself. What happens at the Lord's table, and how this blessed thing comes to be. 
In other words, the concern is going to be doctrinal. And in, in addressing the issue, we're going to consider the Puritan position as well as other views regarding the supper. In, the doctrinal, in this doctrinal section, we'll seek to define the ordinance biblically by considering the words of institution and also the biblical terminology referring to the supper. So with that, point one is the meaning of the supper. You have to remember where the Puritans were in church history. They lived roughly during the 16 and 1700s, and they were heirs of all of the Reformation's debates concerning the ordinance. Some of the popular views concerning the Lord's Supper was, one, the Roman view of the Supper, right, or the, the Roman Mass. Now, many of you are probably very familiar with these different views, um, but the Roman Mass, as it is called, is a continual sacrificing of Christ by the Catholic priest through what they call the miracle of transubstantiation. Trans meaning to change, substantiation meaning substance. Transubstantiation is a doctrine which states that the elements of the bread and wine, the Eucharist, as they call it, which is a biblical term, they believe that they are physically transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ through a change of substance, not appearance. Then they affirm that in the Roman Mass, the real body and blood of Christ is offered up again and again as an atoning sacrifice for sin by the priest. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details of this heinous doctrinal error and its implications concerning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I only want to bring to attention as a matter of fact what they believe, what the Catholic Church believes and was affirmed in Catholic Church dogma by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And then I want to contrast that with some of the other reformers. This view of the Roman Catholic Mass, it is an offense against the once and for all finished sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. It was then and is now openly opposed by Bible-believing Christians. Some of those who stood against it during the Reformation were Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and John Bradford. And these men were just a few of the many who sealed their doctrinal opposition to the Roman mass with their own blood during the persecutions of the Queen Mary of England, who came to be known as Bloody Mary. Think about the importance of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. If Bible-believing Christians were willing to be strapped to a pole and burnt alive, or hanged, or beheaded for such a doctrine... This is no small thing. But even amongst the reformers, like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Holrich Swingley, there were different schools of thought concerning the supper. Martin Luther's view was referred to as consubstantiation. Con meaning together and substantiation meaning substance. Luther argued that rather than the substance of the bread and the wine changing completely into the body and blood of Christ, 
the substance of the elements coexist with the physical body and blood. So there's a, a mingling, in a sense, of the elements with the actual glorified body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would say that the humanity of Christ is present in and with and under the elements when God's people celebrate the table of the Lord. An illustration has been used to describe his view, and it's the, the sponge full of water view, or the sponge full of water illustration. The sponge is not the water, and the water is not the sponge, but they are both there together. So Luther said that when a believer receives the bread, quote, the body of Christ is bitten with the teeth. Ulrich Zwingli was a contemporary of Martin Luther, and he believed in what is called the memorial view. The memorial view. That it was merely a memorial. He argued that the Lord's Supper was only and nothing more than a meal of remembrance. He taught that Christ was not present in the supper. The bread and the cup were merely symbols reminding us that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood shed for us. He stated, Christ has commanded us to do this in remembrance of him, and that is all it is, an act of remembrance. Now, so you have the Catholic view, you have Luther's view, you have Zwingli's view, and now you have John Calvin's view. John, John Calvin was also a contemporary of Luther and Zwingli, and he held to a view on the supper referred to as the real presence or the spiritual presence view. Calvin strongly opposed the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation. He opposed the doctrine of consubstantiation promoted by Luther. And he believed that Zwingli's memorial view did not go far enough. Calvin said that the Lord's Supper is more than just a memorial. It was a memorial, yes, but more than a memorial. He believed that in the Supper, Christ is really present, spiritually, not physically. In Calvin's view, it is by faith that partakers of the supper are, by the Spirit, enabled to lift up their hearts and minds to the heavenlies where Christ is seated in the glory of his Father and are made partakers of Christ's body and blood in a spiritual, nonetheless real manner. Now, the Puritans, you think about it, the, the Puritans inherited all of these debates. And the Puritans, in large part, they also held to a real spiritual presence view of the Lord's Supper. However, instead of, instead of a earth-to-heaven communion, they would emphasize a heavenly participation in the Supper. Puritans in large part, and this is what I mean by that. Um, Calvin said it as if um, in the supper, Christ um, brings the minds of his people to heaven, where, where, where Christ is seated at the right hand. Well, the Puritans would, would turn that upside down. They would stress that through the word and spirit, the heavenly Christ comes down to believers in the supper. And offers himself as a spiritual, as our spiritual food and drink for the nourishment of our souls. So it's it's a it is still similar to Calvin's spiritual present view, but just a different emphasis. 
This is the view and emphasis that we're going to spend our time considering. John Knox could be referred to as the link between Calvin and English Puritanism in regards to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He wrote this, Just as Christ said, He himself is the heavenly bread, by which our souls are fed unto everlasting life. So Christ, in setting forth bread and wine to eat and drink, he confirms and seals up to us his promise and communion, and represents to us and makes plain to our senses his heavenly gifts. And he also in it gives himself to be received by faith, and not with the mouth, nor yet by transfusion of substance, but so through the power of the Holy Ghost that we, being fed with his flesh and refreshed with his blood, may be renewed both unto true godliness and immortality. So Puritans, they opposed the Catholic doctrine. They, they, they believed the, the Lutheran position and the Zwinglian uh, position was un, unbiblical, either going too far or not going far enough. But, and there's, there's diversity amongst the Puritans, but for the most part, they agreed that the supper was more than a mere memorial. William Perkins said it this way. He's uh, often referred to as the father of Puritanism, William Perkins. He says, we keep the middle way, neither giving too much nor too little to the sacrament. So what did the Puritans mean when they referred to Christ's presence in the supper? How is Christ present in the supper? That's, that's the, an important question when thinking about these things. William Perkins again said, There is a sacramental union between the signs and real, realities to which they point. So there's a, there's a union between the signs of bread and the cup, the bread and the wine. There is a union between the signs and the realities, the things that they point to, the actual broken body and the actual shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And <clears throat> between the signs and realities to which they point, which explains how sign and reality are often interchanged in Scripture. The sacramental union is not a natural union or a mutation of the sign into the thing that is signified, but it is a respective union, a union by way of analogy, so as to draw the soul of the Christian to consider the spiritual reality and apply it. And so the bread and cup is to take our mind to the spiritual reality, the shed blood, the broken body of Christ, that we might apply ourselves to it, apply it to ourselves. John Owen, one reason why we so little value the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and profit so little by it may be because we understand so little of the nature of that special communion with Christ which we have therein. That was their real emphasis. The Puritans' emphasis in their doctrine of the Lord's Supper was that the believers really do commune with the risen Christ at the table. And that the risen Christ comes down by His Spirit and communes with His people at the table. Edward Reynolds says, he affirmed, a real, true, and perfect presence of Christ is in the Lord's Supper. He said this. He said this was not merely Christ's divine omnipresence, nor it the physical presence of his human body. So in, in other words, 
this real presence of Christ at the table with his people is not speaking of his omnipresence, nor is it speaking of him being with us physically here. But Christ is presence by, present by the powerful working of his Holy Spirit, just as the sun is present to the earth in its shining of its warm rays. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That we're, we're going to look at is a text of Scripture that they would refer to to support this real presence view. This real presence view. <coughs> First Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 to 22. Reynolds again wrote, the main, the main end of the sacrament is to unite the faithful unto Christ. Since our union with Christ is mystical and not physical, his presence is mystical and not physical. It is indeed a union with Christ's sacred body in heaven, but this does not require the physical presence of his body and the bread for the communicants to receive the graces of his glorified humanity. 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or a communion of the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to je jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Be reminded of the historical context of Paul's letter. Mainly, the social, religious environment that the church was submerged in. There in Corinth, religions and gods were a dime a dozen. And predominant was the Roman and Greek mindset of syncretism. Syncretism, which allowed the worshiper to choose any number of combination of so-called gods with their religious practices as they saw fit. In this passage, verses 14 to 22, Paul's objective is to deal with Christians participating in these idolatrous practices. For the Romans and the Greeks, it may have been permissible to do that. They could have chosen from any of the false gods, any of the false religions, and simply mingled them together. But for the Christian, those that know the truth, there is but one God and Lord Jesus Christ. The topic of idolatry surrounds the whole context. It begins roughly in chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to 11, verse 1. The passage that comes before our text that I just read 
1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, Paul is reminding them of ancient Israel and how they turned aside from the one true living God and went after idols and suffered for it. They provoked the Lord to anger. And so he exhorts them in light of Israel's history to flee idolatry, not to crave evil as they, they did and were judged. In the text that follows our passage, Paul is dealing not with necessarily idolatrous practices, not Israel and their idolatry, but this issue of Christian liberty and in particular the freedom that Christians had in that day to eat meat that had been offered to idols in their, in their market. <clears throat> it's important to note that there, in that passage when talking about freedom, that one eats meat and another doesn't eat meat. And Paul, knowing that there's only one God, and so that that meat offered to an idol is just probably a cheaper cut of meat. He's just setting forth principles of liberty. He's not condemning that meat, though he would gladly give it up for conscience sake. But in our passage, Paul is definitely dealing with idolatry, idolatrous practices. And it seems that there were some Christians who thought that they could still participate in those sacrificial meals and practices of pagan religions. To those who were gone astray, Paul says, flee from idolatry. And in dealing with this participation, think about the that, 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 that word particip participation. In dealing with participation in pagan sacrifices, Paul says to do that is to participate with demons. To enter into those religious ceremonies, those idolatrous ceremonies, they were actually communing with demons. They're actually enjoying, experiencing fellowship with demons. While addressing that issue in, to, in the Corinthian church, he helps us to understand and he helps the Corinthian church to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper. The nature of the participation that we experience when we partake of the Lord's Supper. The nature of the communion that we experience when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Notice, what, notice that Paul asks two questions, both pertaining to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. In verse 16, referring to the cup of blessing and the bread that we break. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a communion of the body of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? The expected response to both of those questions would have been affirmative. Yes, the bread that we break and the cup that we drink, the, the cup of blessing that we bless, it is a communing. In the body of Christ. It is a communion or a participation in the blood and body of Christ. This word in the New King James, communion, the ASV renders it participation. The NET and the NASB have it as sharing. So communion, participation, sharing. It all comes from the Greek term koinonia. You're very familiar with koinonia, I'm sure. It's often translated fellowship in many other contexts. So koinonia is participation, it is sharing, it is communion, fellowship. That is what's going on in the supper, both in Paul's day and in our day. 
In the supper, worthy recipients partake. They share. They commune or fellowship in something. They fellowship in something. Well, what is it? Who is it? Who is it or what is it that the believer has this koinonia with in the Lord's Supper? What does it mean to have koinonia in the body and the blood of Christ? So we've seen that it's translated participation, sharing, communion, fellowship. Anthony Thistleton says that, said this. He argues that the nature of this koinonia is vertical in nature rather than horizontal and social. And an, another way of saying that is the participation, the communion, the sharing, the fellowship that Paul is referring to is not predominantly horizontally where we as believers commune together in the Lord's Supper. But what's being emphasized is a vertical communion that the believers commune with something above, not below. And if you think about it, that is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What do those who practice or participate in those idolatrous sacrifices and ceremonies, what are they doing? They are communing with demons. They are communing with demons. He's, he does not say that to take part in pagan religious ceremonies is to take part with other idolaters. No, though they do. But rather Paul's emphatic statement is this. When one participates in the table of demons, they participate with demons. That, that which they are worshiping, they are communing with. They are communing with the one they are sacrificing to. Now, if we apply that same principle to those who participate in the table of the Lord, then be believers, you have to think about it, believers commune with the Lord Jesus Christ at the table. It is more than just a memorial. Though we remember him, do this in remembrance with me. There is this intersection. There is this interplay. There is this fellowship. A living communion. Actual personal contact. An active common share in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he is present with his people at the table. In other words, you could say 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is speaking about Christ's real presence at the table. Christ, Christ's real presence. What does that mean? Christ's real presence. What does that mean to have communion in the body and blood of Christ? Well, so we know he comes down. He comes down to commune with the faithful in the supper. But what is meant by communing in the body and blood of Christ? What is meant by communing in the body and blood of Christ? Christ and the believer fellowship. They participate. They share. They commune in his body and blood. What does that mean? And how does that happen? Koinonia. When modified in the New King James, it says, um, is it not a communion of the body? Is it not a communion of the blood? When koinonia, that word translated communion, is modified by the genitive of, it could mean this. This is a common usage. It could mean 
the common possession of or the enjoyment of something. So to fellowship or share or participate in the common possession or enjoyment of something. They share, they participate, they commune or fellowship in the common enjoyment of something. Now, what is that? What do all believers have in common possession? Or what is it that believers have and experience together with Christ? The answer from the text is the body and the blood. The body and the blood. A, a present fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. Now, it's not possible for this to be speaking about a top-down sharing of Christ's physical blood or his physical body. Right? Were the believers in the possession of the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus Christ? No. Are we here at Faith Reformed Baptist in possession of the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Why? Because Christ is no longer here on earth. He's no longer a bleeding or dying Savior. He's risen. He was risen and exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven at the time Paul penned this. And he is there even now, crowned with glory and majesty, King of kings and Lord of lords. This cannot be speaking of a sharing in Christ's physical body. Instead, it would help us to understand what Paul means by adding a few words. By adding a few words. To, to share in the body and blood of Christ. Or to participate in the body and blood of Christ. And it's important that you, uh, you know, think about what does that mean throughout the New Testament scriptures when it says we are saved by the blood or washed by the blood. These few words that we could add are the benefits of. The benefits of his, his body. The benefits of his blood. What Paul is saying here is that the bread and the cup us participating in the Lord's Supper is us sharing in the benefits of Christ's broken body and Christ's shed blood on the cross. In other words, we, are, we receive from heaven by the Holy Spirit the benefits of Christ's redemption that he purchased by his precious blood on the tree. In the supper, the risen Christ shares with the individual believer the spiritual benefits and spiritual blessings that he purchased for them in his life, his death, his resurrection as the Christ, the mediator. One commentator said, the fact that Paul here refers to the sharing of the cup and the bread as a communion of the blood and body of Christ proves that it is more than a memorial meal. Something is happening. It's mystical. It's spiritual. But it is happening. At the Lord's table, believers share in all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice as they partake of the tokens. Another word for elements. As they partake of the tokens by which it is recalled, not reenacted. The bread and the cup are a means of grace. That is, how, that's, that is the main point of the real presence view. The bread and the cup 
are a means of grace through which Christ lavishes upon us the benefits of his purchased redemption. Puritan Thomas Doolittle said, he would have agreed with the statement. But he once said, as a believer, I eat the bread and drink the wine to signify my union with Christ and enjoyment of him. My feeding upon Christ by faith for the strengthening of the graces of God's spirit in my soul. And Matthew Poole, when he says, take, eat, he means no more than that true believers should by the hand of their body take the bread and with their bodily mouths eat it. And at the same time, by the hand and mouth of faith, receive and apply all the benefits of his blessed death and passion to their souls. So then, the main point, the main point of 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is that the elements of bread and cup, of the cup, symbolize and present participation or a sharing of the benefits, benefits which Christ purchased for us. Another way to say it is the sanctifying grace of God in Christ Jesus comes down from heavens, from heaven to believers in the supper. When you participate of the Lord's Supper, do you, do you think that? Do you, do you refresh your mind about that? Do you come expecting that, praying for that, anticipating that? That the Holy Spirit would come and that he would take what is Christ's from the treasure house and the storehouse in heaven and pour it into your soul at the table. That is what the scriptures teach he does. That when we come to the table... Let that be in your mind. Come with, a, with an empty cup, with your hands cupped in an empty cup, that God would pour into your soul grace, mm -hmm. that he would nourish your, your faith, mm -hmm. that he would strengthen your soul, that he would so work through your obedient faith and participating in this ordinance that he has commanded, that he would use it to bless you, mm -hmm. that he would use it to bless you. It is a means of grace. That could be an argument for regular participation. Whoever said, whoever said, um, don't read your Bible so often because it can become a routine. You can just get used to it. No, no like we should long to sit at Christ's table mm -hmm. with Amen. him. We should long to have a, a time where we can focus on just remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so forgetful. We're so forgetful of him. Isn't that a shame? All that he has done for us, that we can leave our Bibles and we can leave the church service and so quickly forget the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us this ordinance, this time to sit down at his table with him and to sup with him and to receive good things from his flowing side. Benjamin Keach, who was an English particular Baptist, one who signed the 1689 Confession of Faith, said this. There is a mystical conveyance or a communication of all Christ's blessed merits to our souls through faith held forth hereby and in a glorious manner received 
in the right participation of the Lord's Supper. Christ merits and the spiritual blessings of His body and blood, His work on the cross, are held up for us, for our eyes to behold, for our faith to receive, and to receive by faith at His table. How does that happen? Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual blessing. What is that speaking of? When you think of spiritual blessing, what is that? Are you think, do you think spiritual as opposed to physical? Or sp spiritual as opposed to temporal? Or do you think according to the Spirit? Spiritual blessings are blessings that come to us by means of the Holy Spirit. That is how Christ communicates to us the blessings of His bloody cross. At the Lord's table. The Spirit takes the things that are Christ's. And He communicates them to us. And we receive them by faith. As we partake of the Lord's Supper today. Pray. Long. Expect. The Spirit to take the good things. That Christ has purchased for you on the cross. And bring them home to your soul. And receive them by faith in His blood. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, thank you for your many tokens, the tokens of your love and grace that you shower upon us. Oh, Lord God Almighty, help us not to despise such goodness, such mercy. We pray, oh God, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper today, that you would give us hungry souls that you would give us a hungry faith to lay hold of our risen Christ and that you would send your Holy Spirit to take those good things, that you would encourage our faith, that you would grant us repentance anew, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would sanctify our souls, that you would make us to know what is the width and the depth and the height and the length of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would bless our participation. We pray that you would be here through your Son and through your Spirit to commune with us at your table. In Christ's name, amen.